It happens every 100 years. A once-in-a-lifetime astronomical alignment with awesome views of the planet Venus and the Sun. From the Infrared Telescope Facility on Mauna Kea, Hawaii, NASA EDGE brings you three unique telescopic views of the transit of Venus. Eliane ho iota iti mai Ahiti mai no otoi Ahiti puno me te aloha Aloha e uh, I want to thank Koa in particular right off the bat for that wonderful chant that opened the show that's a big part of what's going on with this uh, broadcast. Not only are we looking at the Venus transit, which is impressive, but a lot of what we've done is centered around Hawaiian culture, which I understand has a lot to do with astronomy. We as Hawaiians have always been astronomers. We've looked to the heavens for guidance. And if you think about it, navigation and wayfinding is with the stars, and that's what brought us here from the South Pacific originally. So it continues here because not only are we looking at the transit, there's a whole complex of observatories up here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Polynesians and Hawaiians of old were explorers of their day using the instruments that they had at hand at their time. Uh, today's explorers, of course, are astronomers on the tops of uh, big mountains like uh, Mauna Kea here, and they're discovering uh, distant galaxies in a vast universe. So there's a lot of parallels here. We're up here at an area, while it looks like Mars from a NASA standpoint, I mean, obviously it has great significance for Hawaiians in general. Mauna Kea has always been a very sacred mountain to the Hawaiian people. It is the highest point in the Pacific, and we say that this is Vaua it's the realm of the gods. So it's very sacred. David Kalakaua, our last king, he actually invited astronomers to come here in 1874 for the Venus transit. And they set up telescopes on Oahu, they set up telescopes here at Huliha'e Palace in Kailua-Kona, and also on the island of Kauai in Waimea Town. This event is a revisitation of an event that occurred 136 years ago yeah. under the reign of one of Hawaii's last monarchs. It, it offers a cultural component for which many of our young people can uh, take uh, uh, great pride in. And, and I think that's great too, and I hope that uh, there's some additional breakthrough that will allow all, us all to come back in 2117 to Mauna Kea and actually witness the next transit, you know? I mean, well, you know, I, and listen, I'm rolling the dice on that one, if well, that's okay. I, I don't want to wait that long, Blair. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you what, after the show, you can take the copy of what we do here and just rerun it. Lou, this has been a, a sort of a two-year process in the making to get ready for this event. Uh, take us through that process. Uh, actually, the process started uh, back just a little before 2004 when we realized, oh my God, there are gonna be two Venus transits and we're gonna be around for them. So we built on the education program for the 2004 transit, uh, observatories from Nova Scotia down to South America, looking at the transit and piping the images in. About a year and a half ago, we started preparing for this one. And what's so cool about this is we have so many wonderful partners around the world who are helping us out holding transit parties, holding observing events. This is truly an international, worldwide event. And right now you're taking a look at the H-Alpha telescope. And throughout the show we will be going to Calcium, calcium K. K. Then the there's another, there's a white, 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 white light, light filter. 
So we have three different views and we're going to be rotating those views throughout the uh, seven hour program. And it's going to be it's pretty stunning, isn't it? And, and seriously, kids, if you're out there, please don't look at the sun. Even our cameras, if they weren't filtered properly, we they, it would damage the cameras to look into the sun. It's, it's right. serious business. And we got to remind you of how high we up, how, how what altitude <laughs> See, we're at. It is affecting me already. We're at 14,000 feet and we actually came up to Mauna Kea several days ago to get acclimated. But even if you're acclimated, you know, you can have, show the effects of altitude. And um, if during the broadcast we start speaking slowly or something comes out wrong, it's because we're being affected by the, the altitude. We have a special partner way up in the sky in space that's actually taking some cool uh, images of the sun. Yeah, that's uh, SDO, SDO, or the Solar Dynamics Observatory, and that's NASA's newest solar mission that's giving us this super high-definition view of the sun in many different wavelengths of light, incredible spatial resolution. The images are spectacular, and so they've put together a special viewing program just for the transit of Venus. And they're going to give us an unprecedented view from space from before it even reaches the sun as it travels across and then leaves the sun. We're going to see it not only in the visible, but we're going to see it in extreme ultraviolet, which shows us this outer area called the corona, which is something that's very difficult to see from the ground except for during a total solar eclipse. As I understand it, you're the director of NASA's Infrared Telescope Facility, correct? Yes, I've been, I've been doing this for about 10 years now. What do you do at the IRTF, if you will? Well, the IRTF was built by NASA to support planetary missions. So our priority is to provide observations that are useful for NASA, for NASA's missions, and also for planetary research. It's pretty unique to have an infrared telescope. What, what do you actually do with an infrared telescope? Because obviously all my astronomy work has been with amateur telescopes. Okay, well, infrared is a heat radiation. And it turns out there's a lot of information uh, in the infrared wavelengths that don't exist at visible wavelengths. And because it's heat radiation, we can detect the amount of heat that astronomical bodies um, emit. So we can measure temperatures of uh, the surfaces of the satellites and planets and other stars and even galaxies. Did you pick this location on Mauna Kea because of its altitude and everything because it helped infrared observation particularly, or, or what played into that decision? Yes, uh, this telescope was built here specifically because it's the best site in the world for infrared astronomy. Because high altitude means it's very dry. Mm -hmm. We're above a lot of, of the water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere, and water vapor is a main absorber of infrared radiation. So it's very important to be at high altitude. And also it's cold. Since we're trying to detect infrared radiation, thermal radiation, it's um, very important to be in a, in a cold site. Now, yeah. do you guys run all year or do you operate seasonally? Uh, we operate pretty much every night of the year. We're one of the few observatories that welcome visitors to bring their instruments to the observatory. We can transmit the data to their home institution by the internet. But more importantly, many of our observers observe remotely. They'll stay at their home institution and observe with our telescope using the internet. Actually, most people do enjoy coming out here. Uh, it's a, quite an experience to be up here. But it is an extreme environment. In fact, we've learned all about the safety precautions that you yeah. have to take here, uh, even driving up in terms of snow and, and all kinds of conditions you might encounter. Mm -hmm. But then also operating at altitude requires a good buddy system and lots of uh, contingencies. So the observers and the scientists and all the facility folks stay safe. Sherilyn, some people would ask today, what, what's the big deal? Why should we care about the uh, transit of Venus? 
Ah, well, the transit of Venus is one of those things that have helped us understand our place in the cosmos. You can measure the transit of Venus and do some simple trigonometry and geometry. Yes, you too can do it in school. <laughs> and, and basically calculate the distance between the Sun and Earth. And that astronomical unit gave us a calibration for how far away all the other planets were. In the early 1600s, they only knew relative distances, how right. many times further away things were. As soon as they got one distance measured, then they could use ratios and apply it to everything else. And parallax was the method we can determine what that distance is. That, that's right, and, and, and this, is the, this is the miracle of, of the ancients, who didn't have telescopes, they didn't have spacecraft, they didn't have advanced instrumentation, but they had their minds, and they came up with these amazing techniques to understand the universe. So we have this technique called parallax. Uh, parallax, in, a, in just a few words, is the fact that nearby objects appear to fall against their background in different places depending upon who's looking. And the best way that I've found to demonstrate this is just to use your body, okay. outstretch your arm, and put your thumb up. Yep. Okay, and thumb close, up. close one eye. Does it matter which one? It doesn't matter which okay, one. Okay, I'm gonna close my right eye. All right, that's fine, Blair. Okay. Right. And, and then look and see where your thumb falls on the background of the IRT up here. Now close that eye and open the other one. Gotcha. Oh, wow. I'm almost covering the camera shift. now. It shifts. Your thumb appears to shift, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yes. Now do it a couple of times so you make sure you know how much your oh. thumb is shifting. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, there's okay. a, a big shift. All right. Now move your thumb in close to your face. Okay. Do the same thing. First one eye, then the other. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. What do you notice? It, it, the distance is greater. It appears but, to move more, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Okay. So now we have a qualitative method, not that you would ever uh, use this. But we have a qualitative method of telling how far away from your face your thumb is. Right? <laughs> okay. I would call this an arm's length. It's not an arm's length, but you don't know. You could be anywhere okay. in here. Now replace your thumb, though. Imagine, replace your thumb with the planet Venus. Okay. Um, hmm. Your thumb right. is now the planet Venus. All right, Venus. I see that. Your two eyes are I'm now two observers on the Earth, spaced widely oh. apart. Yep. And the background of the IRTF here is the sun, is the disk of the sun. Okay. okay. Now we have a qualitative method of determining how far away Venus is. Okay, now for the purposes of illustration, you said the two eyes being two different uh, observers on the Earth, right? right. So it, historically, that would have been those in Hawaii looking at it versus those in India looking at it back in the 1800s or those somewhere else on the planet. But that's the two different observers or multiple dif multiple observers. That's right. Great expeditions to okay. far off lands were launched the, in order the, to do but this. Is it the key though? When you had those two Earth observers, they had to be a, a certain distance apart because you don't want to be in too close like we are because the angle is going to be... Uh, the angle will be too, too small. small. You won't right. be able to measure it. Right. So they would try to get thousands of miles apart. Franklin, obviously everyone's very excited about Transit of Venus, and one of the events that we got to see earlier was First Contact, which is really cool because that's when Venus first crosses in front of the sun. It was a very special moment indeed. You know, we love it when kids get excited, but when you see adults turn into kids right in front of your eyes and get excited about the Venus Transit, it turns into a very, very special moment. What came out of these earlier transit observations is that Venus had an atmosphere. To be able to see that ring of light around Venus as it started passing in front of the sun because of the way that Venus's atmosphere was refracting that light from the sun, I mean, that's changed everything. And the other thing about the transits, this is the method that the Kepler spacecraft is currently using to 
detect the presence of Earth and Venus-sized worlds, because after all, these worlds are about the same size, right? They are using a telescope looking at the area of the sky called the, the Summer Triangle or the Navigator's Triangle here on the island. Uh, they're looking in that area of a sky at 100,000 stars to detect this, just this type of transit to detect the presence of Earth's and Venus-sized worlds orbiting the distant stars. I noticed that we've been getting a lot of questions from a lot of the social media folks, but you've actually been there firsthand. Have you seen a lot of new fans joining people that you hadn't oh, known yeah. before, that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. We probably have doubled doubled the viewership in our Facebook and um, Twitter site already just since this morning. And the questions that are coming in are just extraordinary because we write those questions down as quickly as we can <laughs> and race them out here. Now, And that's an important point. A lot of people would say, well, why not just send them to a phone or something like that? We yeah. are operating near NASA's infrared telescope facility. We are not allowed to use cell phones up here because That's it right. interferes with the operation of the telescopes. And of course, these telescopes are all operational. They're not they taking are. a day off for the Venus transit. I mean, obviously IRTF functions mm -hmm. at night primarily, but nonetheless, some of the other telescopes you see in the background, they operate and they are not shutting down today. They're That's observing. Right things are in full swing here. So we yeah. can't use these new technologies here. In fact, you see, we're, we're on wired mics. We That's usually right. do wireless mics. And right now I have the monitor here and I want to show you an image from SDO and I want you to explain to our viewers what they're seeing. Okay. So this is amazing. This is data in the 304 angstrom wavelength from SDO. This is showing us extreme ultraviolet light and this is very sensitive to material in the tens of thousands of degrees and normally you would expect it to be a black dot but what you're actually seeing here is light is being scattered around it and so it's it's actually got some color to it you can see not just the simple black dot and this particular wavelength of light is really important for looking at things like solar prominences and also solar filaments the Holly, uh, Alex has talked about solar prominences. Uh, can, can you explain a little bit about what that is? Sure. They're my favorite solar activity of all time. <laughs> solar prominences are huge masses of material that are suspended in the very hot corona, which is the outermost layer of the solar atmosphere. Now, these prominences, they look like clouds, but they're very dense and relatively cool on the order of maybe 10,000 degrees to 80,000 degrees. But oftentimes, you will see them erupt, which means they fly away from the sun at very high speeds. And they are associated with what we call space weather, coronal mass ejections, so are also associated with flares because of the uh, process called magnetic reconnection, not magnetospherence. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the different spectrum telescopes that we're using, calcium K, hydrogen alpha, white light, things like that. And a lot of our viewers just don't understand what we're, we're meaning when we're saying that. I know I don't understand what we're meaning. We're actually looking at the sun in different wavelengths of light. Oh, well, what does that mean? Okay. Okay. Well, light behaves as a wave uh, and as a particle, by the way. We'll right. get into that, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's for was, another show. It, light was first understood as something that was probably a lot like sound waves. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's a little different than sound waves because it doesn't need a medium to propagate through. If you drop a pebble into water, you can see the waves rippling. It's kind of like that. Okay, so if, if we're looking at different waves of light, then the calcium K being one wavelength and H-alpha and white light, what is the benefit of looking at those different wavelengths? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, hydrogen alpha is a red wavelength. 
occurs at 650 nanometers or something. Calcium K is in the blue, about 390 nanometers. And as you look at different wavelengths, you're also sensing at different levels in the sun. And so we can see a little bit different parts of the sun. The universe in general looks different depending on the color of the light that you look at it in. So we can get a little bit different definition by looking in these different wavelength or frequency ranges. Okay, so that's the Earth cool, any as a result of the sun, uh, Venus transiting the sun. Venus appears to us in this transit to be about 1 30th the diameter of the sun. For the amateur astronomers uh, and scientists watching, it's about one arc minute in diameter. And so in terms of the area of the sun, that's approximately uh, 1 900th the area of the sun, or roughly a tenth of a percent. Okay, okay now that's interesting because I had a conversation with the super solar physicist Holly Gilbert about this exact same issue. And she said during an eclipse, you might in regional areas sense a slight change in temperature because you're in shadow. Right. But she went on to say that because of distance and everything else, we're probably not even feeling or, or getting a shadow of Venus on Earth's surface. That's right, yeah, Venus is so much further away, so much smaller in terms of apparent angular size. And of course, in a total solar eclipse, you're blocking out all of the sun, and Venus is only blocking out about 0.1%. So it's unlikely that we're going to be able to measure any effect in temperature from the Venus transit. How long does it take for the images to get to Earth? Oh, oh that's a since, great since question. Since it takes time yeah. for light to travel. That's right. Um, uh, we live in an age where we know that it takes light time to travel. It, we, uh, that was discovered in... thousand miles per second. You got it. Or three times ten to the eighth meters per second. Yeah. Well, I'm sticking with standard. I can't, I can't, I can't convert. Um, Sorry. I guess Sorry, it was the uh, 1600s, I think, uh, where they finally figured that out. They used to think uh, light was instantaneous. But the distance to the sun from the Earth is um, about 150 million kilometers. Um, Venus is about, you know, 0.7 uh, of that distance. So let's call it... For the record, the altitude is why we're allowing Lou to wing it on these numbers. <laughs> we're just winging it here. Um, it takes light about um, a little over eight minutes to reach the Earth. And so, um, oh, probably something like uh, um, a third of that. So, you know, a little less than three minutes from Venus. And the question is, can the ISS see the transit? So Absolutely, that, yes. We have been posting imagery that we've received from the ISS, and it's really spectacular. And that person who's actually taking pictures on the ISS is astronaut Don Pettit, who is uh, the first person to be on station to actually take pictures of a Venus transit. What, what a historical occasion for him to be up on station. He's actually taking the pictures from the cupola. That oh, might be the only place that's better than here. That, 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 <laughs> good point. I think that, that's a good point, yeah. Good point. Can I look at the sun using binoculars if I'm using solar glasses? Not if you're wearing the solar glasses and you have the binoculars in front of your face and, and the, the binoculars are not covered on the front, no. Uh, the solar film that's used in standard solar glasses is a plastic and it's not designed to take that kind of a heat load that the uh, binoculars would be able to provide to it. If you have a film in front, then you're probably okay. I still have a hard time recommending that anytime either. Um, but uh, definitely not uh, on the IP side okay. of, the, uh, of the binocular. Now, another question. This is more of a generic question. I don't know if this is going to be... Uh easy to answer. I mean, how do telescope filters work and why do we need them? <laughs> they essentially remove the light that we don't want it to go through the system right. and only allow that light 
to go through the system that we're interested in. It's not always possible to do everything that we do there with one filter. In fact, our hydrogen alpha telescopes have 17 filters in them. 17 filters? 17 wow. filters. So 17 pieces of glass. 17, well, there's, there's less pieces of glass, but some pieces of glass have one filter coating on one side, one filter coating okay. on another side. More than half of those are for safety. You know, safety is our number one concern. Right. When you get into some of the other filters, the Edelon actually produces multiple sent wavelengths of light in a comb kind of shape. And then we have filters that kind of trim out all the bad cones, and then we have one, and we trim that back uh, even more. So it's a process to be able to get all the way through, removing all the reflections and get it really where you need it. Were indigenous Mesoamerican uh, astronomers aware of the transit of Venus? And certainly the, the Mayans were some of the most incredible uh, observers, uh, uh, ancient observers of Venus. Their calendar is so, so precise, even by modern standards. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, that the Venus transit marks the end of their latest calendar. The Mayans were really exceptional Venus observers. Well, you, I know so little about the scientific side of thing. I, I'm, I'm learning all the time here, and I thought this was a great question. Are Venus and the Sun rotating in the same direction? The, the Sun actually does rotate. On average, it's, a, it's 28, 30 days. It rotates more rapidly uh, near the equator than the poles. So it's rotating in the same sense that most of the planets of the solar system rotate. Hmm. But Venus for some mysterious reason that is really not understood, rotates what we call retrograde or backwards relative to the other planets in the solar system. So all of the other planets, well, Uranus is tipped on its side, <laughs> yeah. okay? And so that's a little funky too. I'm, I was going to yeah. say, isn't Venus saying like, uh, why are all the other planets rotating in the wrong direction, yeah. you know? It's uh, all relative. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, and again, Venus's day, its rotational period is longer than its oh. orbital period. Mm. So, Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so they are just now, now, my question, or the first thought I had when I even heard this question was, well, if they do rotate in different directions, what kind of impact does that have on, on Venus as a planet and, and maybe its role in the solar system? Well, it's an interesting, you said impact. I mean, why does Venus do this? Because, of course, the nebula out of, of gas and dust, out of which the whole solar system formed, gave us a sense of which way things ought to be rotating, but probably some form of an impact in the early solar system created this. And of course, yes, that slow rotation does change the atmospheric dynamics a lot. You heard earlier in the show that there, there's a level of the atmosphere of Venus that super rotates 60 times faster than the surface of Venus, wow. right? So it's, it's just, it's incredible and that's a mystery. Dynamicists do not understand why that is yet. It's just funny that the, the characteristics of a planet and an event like a transit actually come together to make up a, a kind of a perfect storm scenario of information for yeah. us oh, as observers. Yeah. You, know? you know, Blair, the perfect coincidence that the angular size of the moon matches the angular size of the sun and that the Venus transit conspires uh, the orbital geometry and everything so that it's a day's event. Yeah. But it's six hours, yeah. we can enjoy this and do a webcast of this nature and celebrate Venus. We had a wonderful time learning from some of NASA's best astro and solar physicists, educators, as well as many other contributors that joined us on the show. The last Venus transit of our generation has passed, but the memory of this special day will live forever in this groundbreaking broadcast from Mauna Kea. Thanks for joining us on NASA Edge, Transit of Venus. <laughs>